Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Today, we begin a study through this wonderful epistle, and I believe that we will all be greatly blessed by it. Of course we will. It's the Word of God. Of course we will, right? But even though 1 Thessalonians is more obscure than many of Paul's letters, it is indeed a powerful epistle that I'm really excited to dig deeper into, and I trust that this is going to have a profound impact on you as well. Verse 1, let's go ahead and look. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God and Father, uh, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we open up any new book of the Bible, it's important to understand the context of the writing. Here in this first verse of 1 Thessalonians, we have a number of questions that are answered for us. And the first questions that answered for us is this, who wrote this letter? Letter, you say? Letter. Yeah, letter. Because what we have here is basically someone else's mail. See, 1 Thessalonians was a letter that was written by a person and then delivered to another person or to a group of people. And here in verse 1, we see that the author of this letter is Paul. And also, look what it says, Silvanus and Timothy. Note that this follows a typical pattern for writing letters back then by naming the writer first and then the recipients and then giving the greeting. And that's what's happening here in verse 1. So first, the writer of this letter, Paul, and Silvanus, and Timothy. Three people, really? I mean, how exactly did that happen? I mean, did each take turns writing a word, or a line, or a paragraph? I mean, how did three people write one letter? Well, even though it's clear that Paul's the actual writer of this letter, and chapter 2, verse 18 makes that very plain, Paul includes the names of his two faithful assistants who had helped Paul plant the Thessalonian church not long before this letter was written. So Paul, Paul was a true author of this letter, but he includes Silvanus and Timothy in the greeting, most likely to show the Thessalonian Christians the common love that these three men of God who started the church had for them. See, Silvanus and Timothy are united with Paul as he writes these words to the Thessalonian Christians. And that had to have been a great blessing for them to know. And so Paul lets them know. Note that while Paul was the original writer of this letter, we also know that the Holy Spirit divinely inspired these words. And therefore, these words are indeed God-breathed. And because of that, these words have direct bearing on every one of us here today. As 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is inspired by God, literally it's God-breathed, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 20 and 21 say it like this, but know this, First of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. So, here we find that Paul's words aren't just Paul's words. And because the words here in 1 Thessalonians are contained in the Scriptures, that means that these words 
are also God's words to the souls of men and women. It's really an incredible thought, right? That the Spirit of God used men of God to write the Word of God. That even though the natural characteristics of the writers of Scripture are seen in each book of the Bible, and even though each writer of the Bible had his own distinctive style and vocabulary, and even though each book of the Bible grew out of a special set of circumstances, look, God the Spirit moved the writers to write down what they wrote, and He brought about the inspired miracle of the Scriptures that are from Him to us for our eternal benefit. God's perfect book. See, Paul was a sinful man, but God made sure that he wrote perfect words here in 1 Thessalonians. Isn't that incredible? I mean, that's incredible. So yeah, we're reading Paul's mail, but really this is God's mail for the Thessalonian Christians and also for all of us today. And so the letter starts out the normal way letters back then started out with the name of the human author, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. All right, who was Silvanus? Well, Silvanus is the Greek rendering of Silas. And while Luke always called him Silas in the book of Acts, Paul always uses Silvanus, same guy. Talking about the same guy. Now, as we know, Silas was a leader in the early church. He was a fellow missionary with Paul. He was a prophet of God, and he was a faithful brother in the Lord, as Paul calls him. We first meet Silas in Acts 15 where he's already a leader and a teacher in the church of Jerusalem. After the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, Silas was one of the men who was chosen to go with Paul up to Antioch in order to communicate the council's decision to the church there. Not long after that, Paul chose Silas to accompany him on his second missionary journey. When they came to Philippi, these two missionaries were arrested They were beaten, and then they were imprisoned. Remember what happened? What did they do while they were in prison? They sang. That's right, they sang in prison. The next day they were released, but as they left town, they left behind a wonderful group of new believers, Lydia, the jailer, and many others, which made up the first church ever in Europe. From Philippi, Paul and Silas proceeded on to the cities of Amphipolis, Apollonia, and then Thessalonica. In each city, they made new converts to Christ and they built up the church. Later on, Silas and Timothy ministered in Berea. And then Silas spent extra time in Corinth where he ministered after Paul left that city. Silas also served the Lord with Peter. And it's believed that he was the one who delivered the letter of 1 Peter to the recipients. In all, Silas was an absolutely wonderful man of God. He was faithful. He was reliable. He was godly, he was a servant, and he was used by God to impact many souls for the cause of Christ. Silas, or Silvanus. All right, what about Timothy? Well, Timothy was a teenager when he met Paul. His family lived in the city of Lystra. His father was a Greek man, and we know nothing, uh, uh, he knew nothing about the faith. But Timothy's mom and grandmother were faithful Jewish women who taught the Old Testament scriptures to this boy that they loved so very much. Well, as the women heard Paul preach when Paul came through Lystra on his first missionary journey, they then believed in Christ in saving repentant faith, and guess what? So did Timothy. After being stoned and left for dead, Paul then left Lystra, but then when Paul came back to Lystra a couple of years later, 
Paul invited Timothy, young Timothy, to travel with him. On these travels, Timothy helped Paul to establish churches at Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, Acts 16 and 17. During the three years that Paul was in Ephesus, Timothy was with him. When Paul was imprisoned in Rome that first time for two years under house arrest, Timothy was right there alongside Paul much of the time, selflessly taking care of Paul's needs. So for many years, Timothy was a faithful friend, companion, and co-laborer with Paul. Paul, the great mentor, and Timothy, the eager protege. Faithful, godly, servant-hearted, loyal, a true man of God, that's Timothy. All right, what about Paul? I love this. A second century description of Paul says this. Paul was a man small in size, bald-headed, bandy-legged, well-built, with eyebrows meeting, rather long-nosed, and full of grace. Don't you love that? The key, though, is full of grace. Paul truly was an amazing man of God. The guess is that Paul was born around 5 AD in Tarsus, which is on the southeastern coast of Turkey. Paul's father was a Pharisee from the tribe of Benjamin, and nothing is known about his mother. While young, Paul learned the trade of tent making. However, around the age of 13, he was sent to Jerusalem for religious training. He trained under the highly renowned teacher Gamaliel, another Pharisee who was also a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council in Jerusalem. Paul became a great student there, very devout, very strict, very legalistic, and very loyal to his cause. The problem was that the Pharisees greatly opposed Christ, and they were more loyal to their traditions than they were to the truth. See, they were all about rote religion, uh, duty, looking good to people instead of looking good to the Lord. Time went by, and Soon Paul heard about a heresy that was growing. What heresy was that? Anybody? Christianity, right? Which, of course, we know isn't a heresy. It's the truth of God. But to Paul and the Pharisees who were steeped in their works-based false system at the time, Christianity was a great threat to them. See, according to the first few chapters of Acts, the quick growth of the Christian church alarmed the Jewish leaders. They were threatened by this new religion which centered around the man Jesus whom they had crucified earlier. They jailed and flogged some of the apostles, but the church kept on growing. Finally, in Acts 6 and 7, Luke writes about the false trial and then the stoning of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. In Acts 7.58, the passage notes that the witnesses left their clothes in the care of a young man named Saul or Paul. Now at that point, widespread persecution against the church broke out and Paul became very aggressive in seeking out Christians and dragging them out of their homes into prison, Acts chapter 8 verses 1 through 3. He eventually went to see the high priest and he asked for letters that he could take to the synagogues up in Damascus so he could look for men and women who followed Christ there and take them back to Jerusalem as prisoners, Acts 9, 1 through 2. However, we know this, right? On his way to Damascus, something absolutely amazing happened to him. Acts 9, 3-19 through 19, tell us that on the way, a light flashed, causing Paul to fall down to the ground blind. And then a voice asked him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. When he was asked who he was, Jesus identified himself and told him to wait in Damascus for further instructions. Well, 
Paul was led to Damascus where he waited for three days until God sent Ananias to him. There, Paul was saved. There, Paul was commissioned by God to be his apostle. And there, Paul's life changed forever. Jesus does that, doesn't he? Anybody? He changes things forever. After a few days, Paul began to preach publicly that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the rest is history. In his ministry... Paul went on three different lengthy missionary journeys between the years 46 A.D. and 57 A.D. And on those journeys, he started new churches, and then he strengthened existing churches, which is recorded for us in the book of Acts. Paul wrote 13 of the letters in the New Testament, and he suffered greatly for the cause of his king. In 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 27, we learn a bit of what Paul went through for the cause of Christ. And just think about going through one of these things. All right. Paul says this. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Five times. Think about that. Three times I was beaten with rods. So, 40 lashes minus one, five times, and then, oh yeah, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, three times. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, and in danger in the city, in danger in the country. That's everywhere. In danger at sea and in danger from false brothers, I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and I have been naked, all for the cause of Christ. Paul talks about being afflicted, about being in pain, about suffering, about being cast down and seen as a refuse of, of the world, about being hated and scorned for his faith and for his calling, all for Christ. But guess what? To Paul, all of that, every bit of it, was worth it. Christ saved him. And pleasing Christ, no matter what the cost, was all that mattered. That was life now. Christ, Christ, all for Christ. And Paul's a a great example for all of us here today. In the end, Paul had his head chopped off for the cause of Christ, and then Paul went to glory. We say, Paul, was it worth it? Absolutely it was worth it. Without a doubt, it was worth it. And it was this Paul who wrote these inspired words. Along with Silvanus and Timothy, who were there with him. All right. Point number one is done. Next question is this. Who was this written to? Answer, the church of the Thessalonians. It was on Paul's second missionary journey that he received a vision of a man from Macedonia who said, come to Macedonia and help us. So Paul went to Macedonia, which is modern day Europe. In order to preach the gospel in this area, Paul traveled along the Via Ignatia, which was a Roman road that connected Europe and Asia. As Paul traveled along this road, he came upon several key cities and he brought the gospel to those cities. First, he came to Philippi. He and Silas passed through, after that, Amphipolis and then Apollonia and then they came to Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a very important city in that day and it was a strategic city for the work of Christ. Not only was it the capital of Macedonia, but it was also a center for business because it was located on several important trade routes and it had an excellent harbor. 
Thessalonica had a population of nearly 200,000 people, which made it a very big city at that time. The city was originally called Therma because of the hot springs that were close by. But it was renamed later by Cassander, who renamed it after his wife, who was also the sister of Alexander the Great. His wife name, uh, what do you think his wife's name was? Anybody? The city was named after her. What was his wife's name? You're with me. Good job. Okay, Thessalonica. So, Paul came here after preaching in the synagogue. Acts 17.4 says that some Jews and a great many devout Greeks came to faith in Christ. How good is that? Paul later left the city. We're going to look at that in just a second. But after that, he went to Berea and then he went to Athens. From Athens, Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to minister to the believers there. And then shortly after Paul arrived in Corinth, Timothy returned to Paul with some good news about the new Christians in Thessalonica. And Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians from Corinth in response to Timothy's good report of the church. See, Paul wrote this letter for many reasons. He wrote this letter to encourage the church, to answer false allegations against him, to comfort the persecuted flock, to express his joy in their faith, to remind them of the importance of moral purity, to condemn the sluggard lifestyle, to correct a wrong understanding of prophetic events, to diffuse any tensions within the flock, and then to exhort the church in the basics of Christian living. It's a very encouraging book. It's a second book that Paul ever wrote, second only to Galatians, being written around the year A.D. 50 or 51, which means that only James and Galatians were written earlier than 1 Thessalonians. And one of the key themes of this letter concerns the blessed hope of the the Lord's coming, the return of the Lord. See, these new believers were a bit confused about that, so Paul addressed that issue amongst others here in this epistle. It's very encouraging. Why do you think we're going through it? So we can be encouraged, so we can learn, so we can be challenged, so we can be blessed. Okay, so how did Paul specifically know these believers? Well, we know that Paul came through this city on his second missionary journey shortly after being imprisoned in Philippi. But what exactly happened when Paul came to Thessalonica? Let's go ahead and look at that. Please turn with me over to Acts chapter 17. Let's find out about this. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. We'll read verses 1 through 4 first. Look what it says. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into it them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. So here we find that as Paul left Philippi after troubling the city, that he then came to Thessalonica. And when they arrived in Thessalonica, they went into the synagogue as was their custom of doing. And it was in the freedom of the synagogue in Thessalonica that Paul was given the opportunity to preach, to reason, and to dialogue with them from the Scriptures. And look, he didn't just get to do this for one week, but he got to do it for three weeks. 
That This obviously led to Paul sharing the gospel with the people, as verse 3 says, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ, the Messiah. So Paul said, Jesus is the Christ. He's your Messiah. He's your deliverer. And the scriptures are very, very clear about that truth. Paul would have shown the listeners that instead of stumbling over the suffering and death of Christ, that his sufferings and death were consistent with the Old Testament prophecies and they should have been expected. Paul then would have shared the gospel with them, the good news of Christ with them, how we are all sinners and how sin not only separates us from God, but how sin condemns all of us to hell, the just punishment for sin. You say, how's that just Hell for just one sin, how is that just? Here's why. Because our God is an infinite God. And sin committed against an infinite God demands infinite wages. Hell forever. Eternal separation from God. Therefore, either we pay the wages of our sin for an infinite amount of time, eternity in hell, or else an infinite and worthy one pays for it once. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. God the Son, which is exactly what He did on the cross for everyone who believes. Look, saving your sinful soul was very costly. Right? God is holy and just, and therefore He can't forgive sin unless His justice is first fully satisfied. And that could only happen through the death of His Son. That's the only way. Jesus, see, was and is God He never sinned. He lived a completely obedient life. And it was by His death and His alone that He satisfied His Father's justice against the sinner and made peace between God and man. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. See, on the cross, God treated Jesus as if He had committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe, even though He committed none. And look, every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe was not only put onto Christ, but He was also punished for that sick, horrendous sin. So, on the cross... Jesus suffered the eternal hell of all the people throughout human history who would ever be saved. And because He's God the Son, the Messiah, the Deliverer, He could therefore receive an infinite and eternal amount of wrath on that cross in our place instead of us who believe going to hell for sin forever. That's absolutely amazing. And so... Because of Jesus Christ alone, and because of what He did on that cross for everyone who believes, good news, all who believe in Him in repentant faith can and will be saved from the wrath to come. Come on now! That's the best news there is. All who believe in Christ in true repentant faith can and will be saved from the wrath to come. So repent, surrender to Christ, believe, and be saved from wrath forever. That's what Paul preached. That's what Paul preached. Look at the result, verse 4. Some of them were persuaded. Love that. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. How good is that? Some were persuaded and they came to saving faith in Christ. I, I picture it like this. Paul preached in the synagogue on that first Saturday, and then he ministered in the city throughout the rest of the week, and and word has spread. 
The next week, the synagogue was packed, even with a bunch of Greeks, with a bunch of Gentiles, and they too got to hear Paul preach the gospel. And then the next week, it happened yet again, and the result was that some Jews were persuaded to come to saving faith in Christ. On top of that, many Greek Gentiles believed and came to saving faith in Christ. And then, on top of that, even some leading women believed and came to saving faith in Christ. How good is that? Rich, poor, Jew... Gentile, men, women. Come on, how good is that? Christ is good at saving lost souls. So now what? Verses 5 through 9 of Acts chapter 17. Look what it says. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, Those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Isn't that good? Those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city uh, when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now, Does this surprise anyone? What's happening here? Because of envy, a mob soon formed. Get them! How? I know. Let's form a mob. That sounds good. I know just what to do. Now the marketplace was like a courthouse square or like the various parks in our cities where the people flock. It was a place where the citizens gathered together, uh, where the important government buildings were located, as well as stores and where the people could shop. And a lot of people came to the marketplace every day. But note this, evil men from the marketplace speaks of those who belonged to the marketplace. And it refers to those who habitually idled in the marketplace. As if they had nothing better to do with their lives, but hang around and look for evil. That's the idea. Well, these Jews knew where to find those who were looking for trouble. So they came to the marketplace where they found the evil men of the marketplace, those who had low to no morals, those who oppose what's good and those who exalt wickedness, the type of men who don't hesitate to inflict harm. Hey, guys, looking for trouble? There's a few guys that need to be taught a lesson. So let's form a mob and... Let's set the city in an uproar and let's scare some people. What do you say? And man, they were all in. So the mob formed, the mob set the city in an uproar and they then attacked the house of Jason. Why? Because Jason was a new convert to Christianity. And it also seems that he was the host to the missionaries. See, they were really looking for Paul and Silas, seeking to bring them out to the people in order to do great harm to them, to persecute them, and perhaps to even kill them. Some might look at this and say, I'm not that kind of Christian. I stay on the sidelines. I avoid hardship and trouble. I do my best to avoid the crowd ever coming after me. Man, how short-sighted can you be? Trading God's pleasure for a little bit of earthly ease. Trading eternal treasure for a little bit less earthly pain. That's a fool's way of thinking. See, God's children who truly understand things, we walk into pain if it brings glory to God. We don't run from it. 
We stand up when everyone else is bowing down, even though standing up will bring persecution and perhaps even death, because it pleases God. And God's pleasure is worth any earthly pain. Always, it's always worth that. Look, you'll never regret glorifying God with your life. You will never regret glorifying God with your life. You will never feel bad that you prayed too much, that you read your Bible too much, that you hated sin too much, that you fought the spiritual battle at hand too much, and you will never regret living for and even suffering for Christ. Never, because He truly is worthy. But you will regret being a mediocre, lukewarm, time-wasting, crowd-following, worldly-minded, compromising, weakling of a Christian. You will regret that. Well, the mob broke into Jason's house looking for the missionaries, but they weren't there. But Jason and some other Christians were there, so the mob went after them instead. Look what they did. They dragged Jason and the others out of the house, and then they accused him. Verse 6, when they didn't find them, they dragged Jason and some brothers, brethren to the rulers of the city. So Jason and the others are now before the rulers of Thessalonica. These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason's harbored them and they're all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. Man, I would love that to be said about us. We have turned the world upside down. Why? Because this world needs to be turned upside down for the glory of God, desperately. And I want to be a part of that. Now, the charge about treason was made up of half-truths and no-truths. But their charge about upsetting the world was indeed true. See, there was a kind of harmony in the ancient world among the false religions and false philosophies that the gospel seriously disturbed. I mean, there was peace among the religions and great tolerance. And then Paul came along and he disturbed that peace as he traveled from city to city, bringing light into darkness and preaching the truth that exposes error. You are sinners who are desperate for a savior. No, I'm not. I'm not that bad. How dare you? Jesus is the only way to be saved. How dare you say that? How intolerant of you. How unloving. Repent of your sin and turn to Jesus for forgiveness and life. How judgmental for you to call my lifestyle a sin. I'm not hurting anyone. I hate you. See what the gospel does? It overturns things. It exposes error. It wounds human pride. It convicts people of sin. It offends people. It makes sinners angry. And those who preach it and those who uphold it are the enemy. How sad. But it's the truth of God. And it's the only way for a lost sinner to be saved from the wrath to come. What an honor to be used to turn the sinful world upside down. I mean, I don't want to settle in here. No, I want to cause a holy stir here for the glory of God. In my family, in this community, in this city, in this world. Lord, use us. Right? Lord, Lord, use us to cause a, a holy stir here. John Phillips wrote this. Wherever Paul went, things happened. 
Souls were saved, people took sides, feelings were stirred, the lines were drawn. Paul didn't slip into town, hold a few quiet meetings, enjoy some good home cooking, pick up a generous honorarium, and slip back out of town again without the city knowing and caring that the gospel had been preached. Everybody knew when Paul came to town. Passions were stirred, things happened, the place was turned upside down. I say amen to that. And again, may that be true of us here because we faithfully live the truth of God and because we faithfully preach the truth of God that saves. Well, the charge of treason was a very serious charge because if it could be proved that he was inciting treason against the emperor, then that was punishable by death. So this was serious, but of course, there was no proof of the charge, and Paul and the others couldn't be found, so they dismissed the case, and then they released Jason and those who were with him after receiving a pledge from him. Verse 9, when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. What does that mean? This basically means that Jason and the others had been forced to post bond for the good behavior of the, for the missionaries to do, except to leave Thessalonica possible so that no harm would come to the others. Now, I don't think this was any kind of compromise. I don't believe it was a compromise. I believe at this point, this was godly wisdom. Paul had been driven out of town by angry mobs many times before. And when that time came, he simply moved on to the next city and he preached in the next city. And here we find that same thing happening again. So Paul went on to Berea, and he preached the gospel there. Then he went on to Athens, and he preached the gospel there. It was from there where he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica. And then Paul went on to Corinth, where he met up with Timothy, and he heard the good report about the Thessalonian believers. And then he sat down in Corinth, and he wrote this letter. Now question, do you think the Christians in the city of Thessalonica were strong in their faith after seeing everything that had happened to Paul and the others? Do you? Because I certainly think they were. I certainly think they were. They certainly knew that the gospel comes with trial. They knew that the gospel comes with trouble. But they also knew that Christ was worth all the trial and that Christ was worth all the trouble. And Paul showed that fact to them. So Paul now writes to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the church consists of the people of God, true believers, true Christians. And look, they are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's interesting. Who's the God of the Bible? The God whom we love, the one true God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is Yahweh, Jehovah. The one God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here, Paul is singling out two of the three persons of the Godhead. We say, oh, but what about the Holy Spirit? Well, I don't think he feels bad. Because he's mentioned in verse 5. I don't think he feels bad. But that phrase, from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, is used to stress Christ's deity and his equality with the Father, which is very, very foundational very important to understand. So, just as the Father is God, so too is Jesus the Son, God, the second person of the Trinity. And Paul makes sure to say this in all his letters to remind us to not ever take our eyes off of Christ, our Lord, our Master, Ruler, Savior, and God, who died on a cross to give us true grace and 
true peace. So, now we know the author of this letter. We also know the recipients of this letter. We also know the circumstances from which this letter was written. What then is the greeting? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is grace? Grace is God's unmerited favor towards sinners who don't deserve it. One said, grace is everything for nothing to those who don't deserve anything. Grace is God's generous favor to undeserving sinners and to needy saints. Grace is all God's power, all God's love, all His beauty available to you. Grace. Grace is an absolutely marvelous term which wraps up all that God is and all that God offers to us. And Christians are those who have been lavished with God's amazing grace that saves and that keeps. The greeting reminds these Christians of the amazing grace of God. What else? Peace. Irene in the Greek, shalom in the Hebrew, peace. See, it's because of God's grace that we can have true peace. Peace pictures the binding or joining together again of that which has been separated. And because of God's grace, look, we now have peace with God, which means absolutely everything, and therefore we have the peace of God in our daily lives, even when things are hard, even when things are troublesome, and even when things are rough. See, true peace comes from the presence of the God of grace. Here's the idea. What can man really do to me now that I have the Lord? See? Now that I'm at peace with God, who shall ever separate me from Him? I can endure this. I can overcome. I can be faithful. I can be true because I have the Lord who is my peace and He's watching over me all my days. See? And that this word as a greeting denotes a spiritual blessing which keeps the heart in a state of happiness and in a state of joy. And Paul's reminding the Thessalonians of this in this greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Note how Paul greets them with grace and peace from God our Father. Did you catch that? It's, uh, it's absolutely amazing. Our Father. See, for every true Christian, He is our Father. And it's very personal. He's our Father. He's my Father, right? Now, in that sense, only Christians can call God our God. <coughs> because only Christians are the saved and beloved children of God. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 8. There, he tells us that we, specifically Christians, we have received a spirit of adoption, and now we are children of God, which sets us apart from the rest of unsaved humanity. The Greek word for adoption in Romans 8 literally means to place one as a son or daughter who is not formally a son or a daughter. See, adoption means to formally and legally declare that someone who is not one's own child is from here on out to be treated and cared for as one's own child, including having the complete rights of inheritance. John Murray says that adoption, as the term clearly implies, is an act of transfer from an alien family into the family of God himself. This is surely the apex of grace and privilege, and that's absolutely correct. See, this isn't a cold act by God where he does this. No, this is a family idea that's filled with love and care and feelings and affection and relationship. 
Look, when it came to adoption in Roman society, the adopted person lost all, lost all rights to his old family and gained all the rights of a legitimate son in the new family. In the most binding legal way, he got a new father. Also, he became heir to his new father's estate. And even if other sons were born later on, it didn't affect his rights. No, he was unreservedly now a co-heir with them. Also, in Roman law, the old life of the adopted person was completely wiped out, and he was then regarded as a new person entering into a new life with which the past had no bearing on him whatsoever. Everything changed, see. And guess what? That's what God has done for us in Christ. And it clearly expresses the love of God and the heart of God for us in saving us. Here's the picture. We were dirty, diseased, impoverished orphans with no one to care for us. We weren't there as helpless victims either. No, no, no. We were there because of our deliberate rebellion against holy God. But one day, he showed up at the cardboard shack that we were sleeping in. And in love, he chose us to be in his family. He cleaned us up. He removed our rags, he clothed us, and he brought us into his family where we now have brothers and sisters to share our burdens and to share our joys. He adopted us as his very own so that throughout eternity we will enjoy the unfathomable riches of Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? Throughout eternity. He is indeed our good, good father. Anyone? That's who he is. Because of him, I'm no longer condemned. My eternal fate is sealed and I stand forgiven because of him, of all my sin. Jesus paid the penalty for all my sin on the cross. God loves me and nothing can now separate me from the love of God because he's adopted me as his very own. And now, look, I can now cry out to him, Abba, Father. Man, that's so good, Romans 8. Abba, Father. Cry out is a loud cry signifying deep emotion. Abba is the Aramaic word for Papa or Daddy, which is a very intimate term. It's a word of trust. It's a word of dependence, a word of intimacy, of tenderness, and of love. It's the same word that the Lord used when he spoke to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we, his beloved and saved children, we can go to him like that. Isn't that good? And guess what? He won't cast us out. Think about that. Once we were trembling sinners living in fear, and now we're sons and daughters in the beloved care of our Father. Once we were strangers, now we are family. Once we were shut out, now we are intimate. And we can go in the presence of the holy God of the universe, and we can say, Daddy, and He will say, I'm here for you, my beloved child. That's amazing. What a God we have. So look, adoption means that you have a new family. The old is gone forever. The old master is gone forever. The old name is gone forever. God is your father. The Lord Jesus Christ is your savior. And the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. Adoption also means that you have a new responsibility. To live for the glory and honor of your good God with passion until you receive the ultimate rewards that come from that adoption. Look, you are rich now in Christ. Don't live like a spiritual pauper. You have the Holy Spirit. Don't live in the flesh. You have access to God. Use that. You have brothers and sisters. Lean on them. You have spiritual gifts. Put them to work for Christ. You've been set free from Satan's power. Don't mess around with the devil anymore. You have a new family. Stop living like you belong to your old one. 
Adoption is a wonderful truth for all of us in Christ. God is our Father. He's our good Father. And we are His beloved children. That He went to radical lengths for to rescue and to make His own. That's amazing. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May this truth about our amazing God compel us to be eager about what Paul writes next. We're going to find that out next week. Don't read ahead. Just kidding. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, so much for your wonderful word of truth. And even though we only covered one verse, <laughs> there's much in here that can apply to us as we look at these things. Convict us. Encourage us, teach us, help us, Lord. And may we bask in Your truth and in the reality of who we are because of Your incredible grace alone. We don't remotely deserve You. And yet, look at us. Thank You. May we stand in awe of You. May we love You with passion. And may we serve You with boldness and conviction until you call us to glory. Bless us now. May we encourage one another. In Jesus' name, amen.